Hey, Ipsy Stories listeners. What you're about to listen to is part two of a two-part episode featuring an interview with Matt Siegfried about the history of the UAW in Willow Run during World War II and the way its presence has changed the landscape of our community, both within labor and beyond. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, I definitely recommend checking it out first. It's the episode called Episode 11, Part 1, The Union Comes to Town, A Labor History of Willow Run, in your podcast feed or on the podcast webpage, which is ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. Then come back here and listen to this episode. If you are all caught up, simply listen on for the second half of our interview with Matt Siegfried. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Continuing our interview from the first part of this episode, the next question is, what can you tell me about the Rosies? I do want to talk about the Rosies. Men are going into the army on a mass scale. Will run, its plan originally, I think, is to have 80,000 workers. It never gets anywhere close to that but it has 45,000 workers at its height. That's like three times the population of Ypsilanti. A lot of people are moving here and coming here, not just from the South, from all over. So Local 50 is the UAW local that will represent bomber workers, plant workers. And Local 50 will become one of the largest UAW locals in the United States. And because of the weight of women workers, eventually at Willow Run, where we're talking maybe about 20% of the workers will be women at a certain point, industrial workers in the UAW, the weight of women workers in the plant means that they have weight in the union. You see women running for top leadership positions in the unions on these slates. I want to mention a particular woman named Louise Stabler, who is a single mom, auto worker from Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area. And she's a socialist activist. She's in a small socialist group called the American Socialist Union. And she becomes a major women leader in Local 50. I want to say a little bit about this myth we have. Everybody sees that image of the Rosie in her denim overalls and her red bandana around her head. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. So let's talk about those denim overalls, shall we? Those denim overalls were mandated that women workers at the plant wear them and not men. Now, why was that? And by the way, the women had to buy them. Henry Ford thought that women in civilian clothes, their figures would be disorienting to the male workers on the plant line. And the way to prevent the men from falling to their animal urges would be to cover the women in these big coveralls. So their figures would be covered. Now, if you've ever worked in a factory, you don't wear loose clothing on the factory floor. It's dangerous. There's certain places you might wear it in a factory, but on the production line, you don't. So what happens is on August 15, 1942, 26 women were sent home from the plant because they came in in their civilian clothes and refused to put on and buy those other outfits. Women wildcatted in support of those women. And eventually the women at Local 50, within a week or so, won the right to wear their own clothes on the factory floor, just like the men. So if you want to celebrate Rosie the Riveter, do not wear Henry Ford's mandated blue overalls, which were a deeply sexist, deeply anti-woman thing. Wear your civilian clothes like the Rosies actually wore and fought to wear. Don't wear Ford's uniform if you want to honor the Rosies because they refused to wear Ford's uniform. And so if you actually look at pictures of Willow Run, you will see women in their civilian clothes. That image of the woman in her outfit was created by the Westinghouse ad campaign. It was a poster in a factory to tell women to work hard. That's what it was. Now, we've appropriated it. I understand it means different things now. Obviously, things change and people have invested all kinds of different ideas into that image. But I think the history of that image is more telling than the ideas that we invested into the image about the reality. So I understand people want to be invested in that image. I understand people pull power from that image, but that's not what it was there to begin with. And if we don't understand that reality, we're not going to understand what women really went through during World War II. That's the reality. That's the reality. What was housing like for workers at Willow Run? It was desperate. Housing was desperate. There's no services. There's no sewers. There's no running water. There's no electricity. There's no houses built. People are living in trailers. We have the 1920s, so we don't have any housing built before then. It takes the federal government to come in and deal with housing. The federal government is the only power with the ability to do that and to create housing, not on a profit basis, because nobody's going to make housing for these workers on a for-profit basis. If you're a capitalist, you're not going to invest in that. It falls to the federal government. What is the federal government going to do? Are they going to follow anti-racist housing policies or racist housing policies? They choose racist housing policies. We need to remember, we think of public housing now as like the last place you go before you hit the streets. And that's only because we've deprioritized and defunded public housing that we have that attitude towards it. In this period, public housing, you got out of the tenement and into public housing. You got your own bathroom. You got your own stove. Getting into public housing was a big step up and people had parties and celebrations. It's only when we defunded public housing and forced people into loans to get private housing that we have this attitude that public housing is a step down. Then for most working people, it was a big step up. It was federal housing, so that meant there was some sort of democratic control. You could go to the city council and complain. 
So you had the UAW and the CIO organizing tenants unions and even organizing strikes around the food in the cafeteria at the lodge, like the portions weren't big enough, that kind of thing. Now, if you look at where the housing ended up, I think it's really telling. Part of it is in Superior Township and part of it is in Ypsilanti Township. It's cut. It's divided by Clark, which divides north and south. And why is that? That's absolutely conscious. That is to separate the voting power of that community between two townships so it can't control either township. That's why that's like that. It's literally meant to deprive those people of their democratic rights as a collective community by dividing it by Clark. And we also had property qualifications to be able to vote for school boards. So all of those people, because they rent from federal housing, are not owners of property, so they can't vote in school board elections for their own children. And we have property qualifications for school board in Ypsilanti well into the 1950s, which is only a racist policy. And so what happens is the black and white families in Willow Lodge, to be able to vote in the school board elections for their own community, all pitch in a dollar, 50 cents, whatever, and buy an acre of swamp land so they can claim to be property owners so they can vote in the school board election. The struggle over housing is also a struggle for democracy. It's a struggle of who has democratic say over their own community. Who's considered a member of the community? Who gets to determine that? Is it the people who can determine where the houses are built? Who's a member of the community and who's not? Is it the people who live here but don't own here? The struggle for housing was also a struggle to expand democracy and for some sort of democratic control. And because of that, it had to take place within the arena of public policy. It was a major struggle around housing, both to get the housing built for all workers and then to get the housing built for access to Black workers. By the time Park Ridge actually opens up, the color line has been broken at Willow Lodge. By the time Park Ridge, which is just built for Black people, opens up, you can move to Willow Lodge as a Black person. Now, it's internally segregated. It's the Clay Hill area of Willow Lodge that you have access to, but you can move up there. And also the plant is closed down. So there were 45,000 people working there. Henry Ford walks away. Willow Run becomes a ghost town. They built all of that for the workers there, and then Henry Ford closed the plant. So it's literally a ghost town. By 1946, Willow Run is in deep crisis already, in deep crisis already. And I think that's also something we should recognize is we think that sort of the deindustrialization in Washington County began like in the 1980s, like in a Bruce Springsteen song. But it begins first immediately after World War II. We've been hemorrhaging jobs since June 1945. 1944, Willow Run has 45,000 people employed at it. When Kaiser Frazier opens up in 1951, 10,000 people employed at it. When GM opens up in 1956, 6,000 people employed at it. You've got a constantly ratcheting down of people involved in that production. And yet you had tens of thousands of people move here for that production. And that's when you get that kind of devastated Willow Run notion. That begins in the 1950s. That's when that begins. There are talks about blighted Willow Run, impoverished Willow Run by the early 1950s. What can you tell me about the Carver Center? The Carver Center is the most important community organization in Ypsilanti during World War II. And it is named after George Washington Carver. And it is largely started by Black women 
it probably has its beginnings in doing what we're talking about, which is providing services to a working class community that has no services provided for it. If you work in the factory, who's going to take care of the kids? The Carver Center begins to take care of the needs of this industrial wartime working class population. It's centered on African-American community. It's centered on young black activists, and they call themselves the Carver Center Comrades. Leading members of the Carver Center would be people like Maddie Dorsey. The Carver Center organized co-ops. They organized voting drives. Louise Bass, another black woman who becomes the math teacher here, is very important to that. So it's centered on Black women. It's an organization with Black women leadership. It's closely connected to the UAW. Local 50 is providing it with a good deal of funds and money. The NAACP is also involved, and the Young Communist League is very active, and that's the Young Comrades. It's hard to underestimate what the Carver Center is able to achieve here during World War II. They become the center of community life. Young Quakers from the American Friends Services Committee come to Ypsilanti during World War II as their service, and they live in Perry School. They all camp out, and they write a diary about working here during World War II and their activities with the Carver Center. So you can read a kind of monthly diary of the activities of the Carver Center. The Carver Center is both providing services and a cultural space. And the Carver Center is also a cultural space where Black and white workers who had never met each other can meet each other in a kind of safe space. The building of the Carver Center moves around. The Carver Center is an institution that is in certain buildings. The Carver Center will open its doors to Black jazz musicians to play right alongside of like white Appalachian jug bands, trade music and trade instruments an attempt to cross divisions and to create a community where community didn't exist before. The Carver Center is providing all of those things, and it becomes a kind of semi-official place. The federal government decides to take it over, more or less. You're not going to have Black women lead it if the federal government's going to take it over. The women who had led it previously were kind of displaced and replaced by Black male technocrats. They become the Black leaders of it. It's completely unfair to the Black women who have been leading this. There's resentment on the part of the local Black community that the Carver Center is being taken over by bureaucrats. And it will become the community center for the Park Ridge housing. The Carver Center people themselves were adamant that when Carver Center opened as a building, as a service, it would be on Michigan Avenue and not on Harriet. Because they knew that if it was on Harriet, it would be considered the Black community center and therefore treated as the Black community center by the white power structure and denied resources. But if you put it on Michigan Avenue, it would be considered the Ypsilanti community center and not denied resources. Just like today with north and south of Michigan Avenue, the reason why they chose Michigan Avenue is because that was the dividing line and they wanted to place it on the dividing line. So Carver Center and the Black community of the South Side were adamant that Park Ridge should not exist. We're adamant because it was segregation. We want this community center on Michigan Avenue and we don't want separate housing on the South Side. You were not going to get full integration in America at this period. So if we can't have full access to all of this, then we want control over it ourselves. That's what you see. The first demand is no Black Park Ridge, no all-Black homes, no all-Black community center, and then, okay, if you're going to segregate us, we want Black control over housing. A Black architect named Hilliard R. Robinson is the person who designed Park Ridge Homes and Park Ridge Community Center. 
again, remember that Parkridge homes, those homes that were meant to be temporary war housing, they were lived in until I think four years ago. But Hilliard Robinson is an important figure, and he would have been widely known during World War II. He was based on the East Coast. He was not from this area. There's an amazing, amazing, amazing editorial in the Michigan Chronicle called A Crystal Ball. And it's right before Park Ridge Community Center is opening up. And it's looking 10 years into the future after Park Ridge and Willow Run open up as separate black and separate white places about what racial Ypsilanti will look like. And they were spot on about what that would mean for Ypsilanti, what that would mean for Ypsilanti. What it did is it codified de facto segregation in town. De facto segregation in town before World War II that was then codified into you live over there, you live over there, it's in the rules. Now we've written the rules down. It made it actually a lot harder to break out of, frankly. That's not where it was supposed to go. The demand was full integration, failing that Black self-determination. What does self-determination mean if you don't have the power over your own resources? You don't have self-determination. So you can't tax yourself. You can't allocate resources. Somebody else is doing that for you. You're not really the director, are you? What can you tell me about wildcat strikes? A wildcat strike is an unauthorized strike. The official policy of the CIO is we're going to win the war and we're not going to go on strike. The Communist Party, we have to remember, is very pro-Soviet. And the Soviet Union's in the war. And anything to undermine the war would undermine the Soviet Union. So the Communist Party is also very strong in a no-strike pledge. We want to produce arms to defeat the fascists. Any strike that gets in the way of that gets in the way of fighting the fascists. So what do you do? You want to fight the fascists, but you also want to protect your rights and your own dignity at work and your own interests at work. They have to be the same. You get a kind of rebellion against the no-strike pledge. People voting with their feet. This notion that at Willow Run, we all put away our differences, nobody complained. People went on strike every day. I mean, on every issue you could imagine. The UAW didn't have control over the situation. Well, Wildcat is not the UAW calling the strike. It's the workers themselves going, ah, we're out of here. You saw strikes on everything from women striking, like we talked about, about the clothes that they had to wear, to literally the test pilots of the airplane went on strike because the bosses took their beer from them. People are flexing their union muscles for the first time, realizing what it means to be organized and be a worker with real power. You shut down that plant. You shut down an economy. You have power, power, power in that plant. And people flexed their power. People knew they had power and they used it. You had high absentee rates. You try to run a plant where 16% of the people don't come to work every day. It's very difficult. There were constant shortages. So people are constantly being moved from workplace to workplace and work that they used to do, they don't do now. And so there's constantly wildcat strikes. We don't know how many strikes, hundreds. These are unauthorized strikes. There's also dozens of authorized UAW strikes in the plant. Now, rarely will these strikes involve all 45,000 people. They'll involve a little people here or there. But if one group on the production line quits, the production line stops. Those three guys who want their beer have a lot of power to demand that beer. It's also the UAW trying to control its own workforce who are flexing their own muscles in this period. What can you tell me about racial segregation at Willow Lodge and attempts to remedy it in Washington? What can you tell me about the Willow Lodge Tenants Union and how is the United Auto Workers involved? What can you tell me about the Workers' College? This is a national campaign. 
national civil rights black and labor organizations are focused on Willow Run because it's the main factory in people's imagination. It's also the biggest factory. All war policy is played out there. You get not just local activists, but national activists traveling to Washington, D.C. to lobby on this policy. One of those national activists is a young lawyer named Thurgood Marshall, who becomes a Supreme Court justice. That's the kind of people who are involved in this struggle. They would end up changing federal housing policy and federal workplace policy by the end of World War II. We talked about craft unionism and industrial unionism. And then what we see in World War II is even a step beyond that, what might be called social unionism. The union is looking out for your interests as a worker in society as a large, not just a worker at your place of work. You get the UAW stepping into every single place, retreated to or abandoned by states, by other places. There's no education facilities. There's no sanitation facilities. The UAW steps in. Childcare, workers' colleges. All these people who don't even have a elementary school education from East Tennessee have now access to accredited college programs through the UAW. Just by virtue of being a member of the UAW, you can go to classes. And these classes are on democracy. They're on public speaking. They're on all the kinds of things that would make you a working class leader as well as a good citizen. The Workers' College is that. It's set up at Willow Lodge by the UAW, and it's to be educated. But the UAW sets up literally everything else. Dancing, roller skating, baseball clubs, Christmas parties, everything. I was talking to somebody who lived, grew up in West Willow in a UAW family, and he thought of Christmas as the union hall. That's where you went for Christmas. The UAW, beyond that, register people to vote and provide them something to vote for. We actually see the UAW Local 50 here attempt to create a third party in Washington County called the Commonwealth Party that would organize labor and Black people into a political party that would defend their interests specifically. That's social unionism. It's not just workplace organizing, it's political organizing. In three days, they registered 6,000 people to vote in the township. That changes the demographics of the voting population like that. They changed it in six days. Now, you can imagine certain Republican leaders were not happy with that. You can imagine. And so screaming about communism, and you can see where the Cold War comes into this. You can see where the kind of attitude that leads to the Cold War comes into this because we have a radical moment during World War II. We do. We have a radical moment, just like in the Civil War. We have a radical moment between 43 and 47. 1947 is by far, by far the year with the largest strikes in American history, like on a magnitude you have never seen before. So remember, we talked about 37 and the sit-down strikes. 47 is 10 times bigger than that. What comes right after 1947? The Cold War. For sure, the Cold War comes right after that. Because 47 really challenged, are we going to become a social democratic country like Europe? Or are we going to be like we were before in the 20s? And there was a conflict about where we were going to go. And, well, we know where we ended up going. What can you tell me about the Detroit race riot of 1943 and its connection to Ypsilanti? Is that the term that you'd use? In June 1943, Detroit explodes into extreme violence on a hot summer day. Everybody listening to this podcast will undoubtedly have heard of Detroit 1967 and have their own image about what that means. 
Detroit 1967 is hardly the first riot in Detroit history. In fact, when we talked about race riots, and I'm putting up those scare quotes, it was never meant as Black people rioting. It was always meant as white people attacking Black neighborhoods. That's what a race riot was. In 1943, you see mass white attacks on isolated Black neighborhoods that killed dozens and dozens of people. So Paradise Valley, Black Bottom, that area is attacked by white mobs. Black people are pulled off streetcars on Woodward Avenue and killed. It's really violent, disgraceful, disgusting, terrible. The same time that the United States military, Marines are fighting in the Pacific on the islands, U.S. Marines are patrolling Detroit. There's martial law declared in Detroit. The 4th of July celebrations in Ypsilanti are canceled all during World War II. So let me say that again. This is called the arsenal of democracy that beat the Nazis. We all came together, put away our differences, didn't complain, and beat the Nazis. In reality, here in the arsenal of democracy, the 4th of July was not celebrated in World War II for fears of race riots. 4th of July, people were told to stay home. In the arsenal of democracy during World War II, you did not celebrate the nation's birth for fear of race riots. That is the reality of this area during World War II. That's the reality. Ypsilanti troops are actually in Detroit for like the third time. There's also some violence in Inkster and some other areas, and there's a real worry that it's going to happen here in Ypsilanti as well. Thankfully, what happens is in the aftermath of June 1943, the UAW gets serious. There are racist strikes at the Packard plant. Tens of thousands of white workers go out on strike against working with black workers. The UAW leadership says racism is incompatible with membership in this union. Anybody who's involved in a racist strike is expelled from the UAW. They make their decision, and their decision is we will fight the Klan. Now, did they do it the way I would have wanted to do it and as far as I would have done it? No. But I can honestly say that without the UAW attempting to overcome the racial divisions in this area during World War II, we might have had a race war in America. The UAW really stood between extreme racial violence and our communities during World War II. They did that not by just saying, hey, calm down, everybody, but by saying racism is destructive to our union and is incompatible with our union. And we are fighting a war against racism, literally, right now. The Nazis are an ethno-racial state we are fighting against. And of course, the Communist Party is also in large leadership of the UAW, right, at this moment. The UAW is very strong about fighting racism with Black leadership. And in 1943, A. Philip Randolph, in the aftermath of that rebellion, he wants a mass march on Washington, D.C. to end segregation. A. Philip Randolph, 1943. Let's think about that. Who leads the march on Washington 20 years later? It's A. Philip Randolph. The march on Washington that we all know of, Martin Luther King's march in Washington, if you look at the pictures of it, they will be UAW signs, and they say for jobs and justice. That's the name of the march. It was a UAW sponsored for jobs and justice civil rights march. That was supposed to happen in 1943, but the race riots prevented it, and it kept getting put off and put off and put off. So what we're seeing in 1963 in that civil rights movement is really catching up with the civil rights movement in World War II. The civil rights movement in World War II is our civil rights movement in Southeast Michigan. 
It is where the activity takes place. It is where the organizing takes place. It's where the change takes place. It's 20 years before people catch up to what people are demanding during World War II. All during World War II down at Cadillac Square in Detroit are demonstrations against Jim Crow. Tens of thousands of black and white activists against segregation in the war industries and war housing and for a kind of a racial new deal, a racial new deal. That is exactly what happens in 1963. That's the demands then. They are put off by the Cold War. It just keeps being put off and put off and put off and put off. And then by the early 60s, McCarthyism and the Cold War is enough that the UAW feels, okay, we can talk about race again without being branded as communists. That's what happens. This area is a racial cauldron with almost a racial war. And it is only through the very conscious, dedicated activity of leftists to prevent that racial war from happening that it didn't happen, I have to say. There was mass anti-racist organizing during World War II that prevented that from happening on a scale that would have been truly horrific. What can you tell me about the unionization of the city of Ypsilanti employees? We're talking about those wildcat strikes at Willow Lodge. Everybody around here is looking at these workers. Striking is now part of the daily activity during the war. We talked about 1937, and that really didn't happen in Ypsilanti. It happens in 1943. That's when it happens. So you get all the city workers and the people who worked in sanitation, all the people who were not organized before, they're organized because it's industrial unionism. It's not craft unionism. They can join the UAW. You could be a caterer at the university and join the UAW. You can have the UAW behind your back. That's really important. That's why industrial unionism is so powerful. It's not just the caterers who are in the union. It's everybody in town. The first union at Eastern Michigan's campus, it was Michigan State Normal College back then, is UAW. And it's women clerks. It's women secretaries. I think the secretaries at Eastern Michigan clerical workers are still UAW. Gas workers, city workers, they all go on strike. So we see a series of city worker strikes between 43 and 46, which creates Ypsilanti's so-called middle class. City jobs used to be quite low-level jobs. They were relatively consistent, but they didn't pay well. City jobs became the best-paying jobs, working-class jobs in town. And because they were city jobs, it meant Black people had access to them, unlike in private places. We actually see that those public unions become a center of Black political activity as well. Today, Black people are much more highly represented in unions than white people, and in public unions, significantly higher than white people. This notion of a white working class union, you don't know American history if that's your view of who's in a union. Black people and women are disproportionately in unions compared to where they are in the workplace, disproportionately. Union power in Ypsilanti meant Black power in Ypsilanti in many ways. That unionization drive is incredibly important. And because we now have UAW members as members of city council, they have a voice on city council. And so you see city council getting up and saying, okay, I vote for that wage increase. I can't vote against the union. You see a couple of people who are UAW members who did not vote for the wage increase get kicked out of the UAW because of that. That's the power of the union. Ben Neely, who is CIO, he's not even UAW, he's the Trojan laundry worker leader, black man from the South side. All these new African-American women are coming up to work 
And they want to register to vote, and they were denied registering to vote here because they weren't residents. So Ben Neely walks into the voting booth and goes, hey, I'm the CIO. You're going to register these women to vote, or we're going to come back with the rest of the CIO. You want that? And so that's the power you have. As a Black person, you had no power to do that before in Ipsy. What is your threat before? Now Ben Neely can come in and go, we're going to pick it with the CIO and Immediately, those women are signed up to vote. Unions were power, were power. And it meant that Ben Neely could be a badass if he wanted to, because he had the CIO behind him. And he could challenge cops, and he could challenge voting, and he could challenge the power structure in a way that wasn't possible just 10 years earlier in this town. The city we know of today, kind of Black, labory, Ypsilanti, working class Ypsilanti, we knew until the last three years ago or so, since it's been gentrified. That's a product of World War II. What we think of as Ypsilanti is a product of the struggles of people in World War II to create a better place to live. That's what it is. Ypsilanti was not a progressive liberal town before World War II. It was a deeply conservative, reactionary Henry Ford town. World War II changed all of that through struggle. What can you tell me about education, politics, and recreation at Willow Run? UAW is involved in all levels of politics, recreation, dances, hoot nannies, the whole nine yards. The important thing to remember about that is that women were often put in charge of these education and recreation programs. Those programs became more important than any other programs of the UAW in the lives of many people. So those women became major figures. And if I tell you some of the names of those women who were education directors of the local, they become the first vice presidents of the UAW and the AFL-CIO. The Congress of Labor Union Women, the main body of the AFL for unionized women in the United States, two of their leaders came from Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti has 18,000 people and two of their national leaders for the Congress of Labor Union Women came from Ypsilanti because of this process. One was Olga Madar, who's also the first female vice president of the UAW and a major, major figure. Eula Tate, who is a Black woman who's president of UAW Local 849 and is the second Black woman to be elected to city council in 1991. And she ends up becoming the second Ypsilanti president of the Congress of Labor Union Women and chief organizer of the UAW in Washington, D.C. Ypsilanti bats way above its weight class, in part because of the UAW, because we have the UAW. At a certain point, not too long ago, in the early 80s, there were 18 UAW locals in the Ypsilanti area. 18. That's not that long ago. Not long ago. If you were to ask most people who grew up in Ypsilanti, if they have any family members who were a member of the UAW, they would raise their hand and say, yeah, you know, in the past, ancestors, yes. When I do talks and I say, raise your hand if your family was an auto worker, half the people raise their hands. My family came up to Detroit to work in the auto plant. A lot of our history is through these plants, is working class people. What was the Progressive Cooperative? The Progressive Co-op? It started by activists at the Carver Center during World War II, Maddie Dorsey, mainly. It was a cooperative grocery store. It was meant to be for the Black community, but not exclusive to the Black community. So how were you going to do that? The demand was to have Black leadership. If it's not going to reject the Black community, it has to have Black leadership. The Progressive Co-op worked with Frank Seymour, the UAW, Maddie Dorsey, a bunch of other activists to create a cooperative grocery store in Ypsilanti during World War II. And that ends up becoming Maddie Dorsey's grocery store later. Again, this is our radical moment. 
World War II is our radical moment. It's not the 60s. In Ypsilanti, it's World War II. And there's a whole movement of cooperatives during World War II and right after World War II in Ypsilanti. And they're mainly centered in the Black community. They're mainly centered in the Black community. How did things end at Willow Run? And what are the lasting effects of this time on the political landscape of Ypsilanti in terms of race, gender, labor, and radical politics? We'll talk about the important thing, which is the end of Willow Run, the end game at Willow Run. In 1945, the most left-wing slate is elected to leadership of Local 50. So what's happened in the year previous that it goes from Quillico's United Bomber Workers slate to being rejected for the rank and file workers slate? What happens is that it's clear Willow Run is closing down. The war is coming to an end. And so production is slowing down at Willow Run and people are being laid off already in late 1944. You've got a situation where you've got almost half the workforce in the local is laid off. They're members of the local, they're members of the UAW, but they're laid off from Willow Run. Their demand is get us some jobs, open the plant, keep it open. What you see is you see a gravitation towards people who are opposed to the no strike pledge who are going to fight to keep the plant open at all costs, and people who are for public infrastructure. What you see is the the workers at Willow Run take a very left-wing turn in 1945 and support the rank-and-file slate of Local 50. And remember, Local 50 is 50,000-member local. It's not a small local. That rank-and-file slate becomes the most important opposition within the UAW as a whole. In the Grand Rapids Convention of the UAW in late 1944, the Local 50 leads the national opposition within the UAW and creates a rank and file slate within there. And anybody who knows the history of the UAW, this is the high water mark for the left wing in the UAW. That's spearheaded by Local 50. The main demand that people are making in the rank and file slate is what happens after the war. This is what people are thinking about. What will happen to production after the war? Because we're clearly going to change from this massive war economy to what? What are we going to produce? In what interest? We have all of these factories up and running. We have all this industrial capacity. What are we going to do? Are we going to keep full employment? Are we just going to lay everybody off? What are we going to do? And so the rank and file slate in Local 50 became with a really strong reconversion program, not just for Willow Run, but for war industries as a whole. And it was to nationalize for the government, which paid for our taxes, paid for Willow Run. Henry Ford didn't pay for that. We paid for it. Our taxes built all of these things. We fought for democracy against fascism. We were in alliance with the Soviet Union to do that. It opened the possibility up. So in 44, 45, people thought, okay, we can have a different kind of economy than we had before. We can have a reconversion that creates public buses. Willow Run, what they said they wanted to do, and you can tell the crisis of World War II. We want to create public transportation, and we want to create stock public housing, cookie-cutter public housing we can create here in the plant. Literally, they're talking about solving their own conditions, problems in their plant. That's what we needed after World War II, isn't it? The battle was reconversion. What kind of economy are we going to have after World War II? Who's going to be the center of that economy? Who's going to make decisions on the basis of that economy? What is work going to look like? Because it can't look like the 30s and Great Depression. It can't look like that anymore. 
there was a real moment there where there was a radical, it's not a revolutionary, it's not communist, but it's social democratic. We're going to provide for people public services. It was a public service thing. The UAW Local 50 demanded that the government take over Willow Run. When Henry Ford announced he was leaving, they went and said, no, you must take it over. And then when the government said, no, we will build plants and give them to capitalists, but we won't run them ourselves because that would be socialism. Local 50 said, well, we want the union then to buy Willow Run and run it as a union cooperative. Can you imagine the UAW running Willow Run as a union cooperative to make buses? And Walter Ruther said, well, that's a really good idea because you all support it. I'll take your votes. And so Walter Ruther is kind of brought into political power on the basis of these reconversion plans that he claimed to agree with. And then he used that to turn right around and wipe out the people that demanded those reconversion plans and expel the left. He got to power on the basis of left-wing support in 47 and then used it to destroy the left and support the Cold War. That moment is really important because it decides where is America going to go after World War II? Is it going to go like almost all of the rest of the world in a social democratic welfare state direction? Or is it going to return to what it was? That was a negotiation and a conflict, and it wasn't decided until the Cold War and McCarthyism decided it for us. That's what that process was about. Local 50, in some ways, is the possibility that didn't happen after World War II. It's what was possible, but didn't happen. We ended up getting McCarthyism and that real reaction to racial progress that happened in World War II that led to the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement in the 50s is a reaction against the suppression of the Civil Rights Movement of the 40s. In some ways, it opens up the possibilities for what this country could have been. Nothing is written in stone. There's nothing to say that it couldn't have happened that way. We read history back as if it was inevitable. There was nothing inevitable about it. When Willow Run closed, there was a 16-mile picket line completely surrounding the plant. Have you ever seen a 16-mile picket line completely surrounding the plant to try to prevent the removal of productive assets from the plant? We built this plant with our taxes. We want to control this industry in our own interests. We're not going to let you just take it out of here. The government forced it out and then sold it to Kaiser Frazier. The Local 50 had all of the retirees, the people laid off, were members of Local 50. When Kaiser Frazier comes in, who should get the jobs at the plant? People laid off. That's what you would think. But they were members of the most radical UAW local in town. Kaiser Frazier said, there's no way we are going to open up that plant if it's represented by Local 50. No way. No way. The government? Kaiser Frazier and the UAW leadership combined to destroy and decertify Local 50. They put in an agreement that, in fact, the UAW locals that are representative of Kaiser Frazier plants in San Diego will be the representatives of the UAW workers here. Local 50 was consciously destroyed by the government and the UAW to be able to sell an acquiescent union leadership to Kaiser Frazier and then to GM. That destroyed black leadership. It destroyed lots of things. To destroy women's leadership, to destroy Local 50, destroyed the center of progressive politics in Washington County. That was the center of it. Progressive politics continued along in Local 600 in the Rouge. 
but I think it was Local 869 that took over representation for Kaiser Frazier, deeply conservative leadership, deeply conservative. In some ways, it's a tragedy. The Cold War was a tragedy. It's a tragedy. There were hundreds of people demonstrating at the end of World War II. There were women with picket signs in front of the Ford Motor Company saying, we are not expendable. My husband is not expendable. We celebrate Willow Run. We celebrate the workers at Willow Run. They were utterly expendable. They all lost their jobs when the plant closed. Even though the Cold War destroyed the radicalism of the CIO and the union movement, it didn't destroy them institutionally. And those institutions became the centers of working class life and helped to define Ypsilanti and American politics for generations. Having access to a union job and a pension and paid sick leave and all of that kind of stuff utterly transformed your life. Some people at the end of World War II, for the first time, would have had the ability to send their children to college. And for the particularly American way we organize things, it meant you could own a home. That is the basis for most wealth for working class people is their home. And it meant that black people could own a home, pay city taxes, have a real say in city community in a way that renters are denied that access. It meant that you could send your kids to college. It meant it was expected your kids would go to college. It meant that you could retire. Even with the defeat of the radicals and the social democrats and even the moderates in the UAW, life was infinitely better than before World War II for most people. There were more possibilities for you. And more importantly, there were more possibilities for your children. Up until the early 90s or so, when I first knew Ypsilanti, it very much was UAW, Urban League, there was an NAACP right downtown you could go to, storefronts, UAW storefronts in town. Then with gentrification and the dramatic change of the kind of money that's coming into the county, which is tech, Ann Arbor always was wealthier, but that was academic money and research money. This is speculative tech capital, right, that's just flowing in and, and it's a different kind of money. That's transforming Ypsilanti beyond anything. Gentrification can only happen in Ypsilanti because of the previous deindustrialization. Gentrification can only happen because there was an economic crisis that created the opportunity for them to move into a destabilized neighborhood. You can't gentrify a neighborhood where everybody has a house, nobody wants to move, everybody has a job. You don't gentrify that neighborhood. That doesn't happen. You gentrify a neighborhood that becomes in crisis. Gentrification is a long process, and it always begins with a deindustrialization somewhere in the past. Then the artists move into the warehouses. You know how that works. It's not the artist's fault. Of course, they're moving to the cheapest place in town. That gentrification process that we're seeing right now would not have happened if we had a strong UAW and a strong workforce here. These are decisions we make. We make decisions to give certain groups tax breaks and certain groups not tax breaks. We make decisions about all of these kinds of things. We made a decision to deindustrialize. We made a decision to place all of our baskets at Eastern Michigan University. We made that decision and we're paying for that decision. Well, some of us are paying for that decision. Some of us are getting paid for that decision. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam.
A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be learning about the history of Highland Cemetery from local historian James Mann. That episode will be dropping next week. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell all your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now. The public library is the, you know, the greatest institution in Ypsilanti by far.